Welcome to Pacific Northwest Coffee and Conversation, a bi-weekly podcast where we speak with leaders in the Pacific Northwest fighting hate and advocating for social justice. I'm Mary Cypers, Regional Director of ADL Pacific Northwest. In this episode, I have the joy of speaking with Courtney Gregoire, Chief Digital Safety Officer at Microsoft. Welcome, Courtney, to today's show. Let's get started. So I'd love to start first with your job today and talk a little bit about your journey as well. So your job as Chief Digital Safety Officer at Microsoft sounds heavy and weighty and important. Can you tell us a little bit more about your journey to your current role? Sure. Um, Well, I am am honored to serve in this role really to build on the legacy that Microsoft has had in thinking about the challenging issues of online safety and digital safety. You know, Microsoft is a 46-year-old technology company that makes us really having thought through these issues for a long time. And as we diversified our products and services from the consumer productivity suite to gaming to LinkedIn as a social media platform, our legacy had been in thinking about digital safety at the product level and investing individually as a product. But as we have seen the world evolve in terms of the challenges in the digital safety space and how the ecosystem can really harm not just an individual, but really society, the call was to create a more cohesive digital safety strategy across Microsoft. And so I took on this role just about two and a half years ago. I'd had the pleasure in serving in a variety of roles before that that I think informed how I approach this. I most recently was at Microsoft's Digital Crimes Unit, addressing cyber crimes that impacted the most vulnerable. So referring matters of child exploitation or consumer fraud impacting senior citizens in particular. Before that, my career in DC took me from both Capitol Hill serving as Senator Cantwell's legislative director to serving in President Obama's administration in the US Department of Commerce both of which were really understanding the intersection of some societal challenges in the international realm. And although I didn't see myself landing here, and I think it is one of the most pressing matters of our time and something that I love bringing a multidisciplinary approach to tackling digital safety online. Yeah, you definitely have a super interesting journey from public service to tech. And I know sometimes people, I don't know, do it the opposite directions. There are a lot of ways to get where we want. Can you tell us a little bit more about having worked first in public service and now in the tech industry? I'm just curious, what are some of the biggest connections between the two? And what do you think are also some of the starkest differences besides the snacks at Microsoft probably being way better than in Congress? Uh, Great, great question. Honestly, one of the most interesting experiences I had coming from the public sector side of the equation is after years, you knew how to move an issue forward. You understood that it may not be a linear path in government. You understood how to identify and influence decision makers and recognize at the end of the day that decisions are influenced by a variety of factors. But in my career, I'd come to understand that decision-making framework. And you join a tech company and you meet your colleagues and they think, oh, gosh, you come from the bureaucracy side of the house where I'm sure you couldn't figure out how to get anything done. But each organization has its own decision-making culture. And so to me, what was most fascinating is the path to learning and navigating decision-making within Microsoft as a unique culture. And recognizing that the same applications apply 
you know, what there are multiple factors that go in. You need to bring together the mind share that both influences where's the policy and where's the company going, but it's different. It's a different pathway. And so I often, one of my favorite things to do is mentor people who are coming from the public sector into Microsoft, which we thankfully have a lot of that leadership and mind share, which I, by the way, think really impacts our culture. And when I say, please just don't take for granted that you were coming from the most bureaucratic place. This can be challenging and you need to think through how to build those decision-making frameworks. So those would be the the elements that I've pulled through that there's a little compare and contrast there. Yeah, that's interesting because I, for my own time in DC, it always felt like one of the biggest adages that people always shared with me, especially about making impact in public policy is that it's a marathon and not a sprint. But at the same time, it does feel like in the political world, things are so fast paced and the activity is quick. So I don't know, sometimes change in action. I don't know if what's more important than the other, but as we're suddenly seeing with a lot of issues today, it it takes sometimes decades to make a real change. You hit the nail on the head and maybe this is another analogy, right? In both spaces, I have found it critically important to have your eyes on the long-term societal, cultural change that you want to drive. But you have to have those short-term successes and those short-term wins. And so acknowledging that some of the challenges we're tackling have literally been around since the dawn of time. Hate, online hate is just a manifestation of a societal challenge that we know has plagued us from the dawn of time. So acknowledging that and thinking about what are the incremental steps to progress on a narrative looking towards that long-term solution So the pieces that I brought over are typically, you know, you don't find good solutions if you only look at one perspective. So we're not going to tech solve our way out of the online harm problem. We are going to have to bring together the expertise that comes from the public sector, from technologists, from academics, from those who've had experiences, horrific experiences online. And it kind of goes the same way in government. If, If you leave a societal change to someone who is been in the same agency for 30 years, you're not going to have that fulsome perspective. And I think both sectors get better as they recognize that multidisciplinary approach, but also that part of you got to have some short-term wins. Absolutely. And I think as professionals and leaders in the space, something that I was also taught is sometimes you also need to be able to redefine success because if you're only looking at the long-term in you know, the pushing up the boulder, you know, up the mountain type of work, it's really hard to have that kind of longevity and that kind of continual persistence and dedication. So I do think those short-term wins are also important in terms of just being able to do the work for the long-term. I'd love to learn a little bit more in your role as Chief Digital Safety Officer at Microsoft. What does a typical day look like in your life? <laughs> I, I can imagine that it seems very busy, but what is... What does your job really entail in a nuts and bolts kind of way? Great question. My laughter was what's typical, but maybe telling a little bit about the team that we're building here. Our team is organized into three primary pillars. Our public policy pillar, who is regularly engaging with stakeholders and governments around the world, looking at how content regulation is being shaped. And thinking about the challenging issues of helping regulators understand 
how platforms address challenges in terms of harmful and illegal content conduct online. The second is our content regulatory and governance team. And they are really thinking through how do we organize ourselves internally at Microsoft to understand our values, our digital safety standards across Microsoft and how they intersect with legal and regulatory requirements. Any sector will tell you this, but if you take a legal memo summarizing what you want and hand that over to an engineer, that doesn't usually yield the best results. And so our last pillar is really our digital safety operations team. And those are experts that come, years of experience as technical product managers and program managers, helping turn what are both legal requirements and honestly, our standards of the way we want to do the business and show up from a digital safety perspective into requirements that are consumable by our engineering teams. We've got a data analyst under there who also are looking at what are the trends that we're seeing in challenges online and producing the transparency reports that we think are important for the public to understand how do tech platforms address their terms of use and community guidelines and enforce those. And then lastly, you know, I have a good part of our team is the people who look and review this horrific content and have to make those important decisions. And so thinking about their wellness is another big component of my job. So a typical day is probably going to be looking at metrics in terms of what are the trends we're seeing online. It is usually takes reviewing how we're going to respond to government looking at different regulations around the world and help inform them what makes sense from a governance and regulatory perspective that yes, advances safety, but fundamentally upholds freedom of expression and human rights. And then it's gonna be a lot of coaching because the multidisciplinary part of our team, I focus on a lot, making sure we are communicating effectively across different disciplines and different backgrounds. One of the best parts about our team is bringing a lot of different perspectives. And I think making sure it's an inclusive environment with those who have had different life experiences, different backgrounds, feel very comfortable to look at a problem from 360 degrees and do that collectively. That's a lot of cultural elements as well. Wow. It sounds like you've assembled an incredible team and so many lenses and perspectives with which you do your work. And when it comes to the work itself and the issues that weigh biggest on your mind and your team, what are I don't know, maybe a few of the biggest challenges or issues that you're tackling right now. Yeah, you know, I think we are seeing an understanding of digital safety risks deepen across society uh, in a very meaningful way. And what I hope for the future on that is it means we're going to have the collective wanting to solve these problems. If I just take us back 10 years ago, we were really thinking about how do you tackle individual pieces of content that may be illegal or harmful according to our terms of service. And probably the biggest example was how we tackle online child sexual exploitation. That term gets thrown around a lot in my circles, but let's just say it what it is. Those are images of a crime scene. And those images too often are redistributed among those who want to share this type of imagery and the impact that has on the victim, knowing that that piece of content is out there is incredibly, incredibly painful. So we were proud to be one of the first to develop a tool that really easily and systemically detect known images of child sexual exploitation 
and help platforms remove it. And so Microsoft donated photo DNA to the ecosystem. Thinking about individual pieces of content as harm was a little bit easier than today where we're seeing the evolution. You know, how does misinformation, how does hate speech online not just impact an individual, but potentially impact us at a societal level? And if we think about that really on a spectrum, it makes us start understanding there are new approaches we need to be taking. Some of the partnerships that we have launched really are to get at that we need whole of society solutions to that. And so I reflect on the horrible tragedy in Christchurch, New Zealand, that made good by creating the Christchurch call to action. And Prime Minister Ardern and President Macron of France said, we need to bring together tech with government, with civil society to say, we want to ensure that we never have a problem again in which an individual was literally radicalized online and motivated to live stream their attack on innocence. We launched the Global Internet Forum to Counterterrorism to do just that, and I sit on that board. I was proud to be the chair when we hired our first executive director. And the structure of that is really to provide research, technology solutions, and that multi-stakeholder forum to keep asking the difficult questions that are not always comfortable among stakeholders, but a space to really unpack them and, and hopefully look at the future. So while I'm proud of our legacy of donating tools, those tools probably solved a much easier problem than how we think about the ecosystem of hate. And why the GIFCT and organizations like that is so important is the proliferation of applications out there mean that individuals are using five to seven technology platforms regularly. And an individual platform's ability to address harmful, potentially violating content or conduct is only going to be limited unless we really have the ecosystem thinking about it. So core to this is thinking about counter narratives. You know, we have been proud to partner, being our search engine has worked with the Institute for Strategic Dialogue, really to serve advertisements up when people are searching for violent extremism phases. Those advertisements are that kind of moment of inflection to help people think and provide new accesses. But so we're seeing this, this new need that really has to think about this, both from a multi-stakeholder perspective and from what are the right interventions, interventions that potentially could help prevent an online experience moving into a real-world harm. And speaking of that multidisciplinary approach, I know that you um, just attended the Eradicate Hate Global Summit in Pittsburgh, which was born out of the Tree of Life massacre in 2018. And we just commemorated the three-year anniversary of that horrible shooting. I know that the summit brought together a lot of different global leaders. I know our CEO, Jonathan Greenblatt, was really proud to deliver one of the keynotes for the summit. And I know that you spoke on a panel with a lot of other technology leaders about eradicating hate and extremism. Um, there were a lot of big players like Microsoft and Facebook and Twitter. What were some of your impressions at the summit? And was there anything that moved you? Yes. You know, I am just incredibly proud of the community of Pittsburgh, who in several ways during the summit shared and including through a documentary film, how the community truly responded to come together after the tragedy at the Tree of Life Synagogue. And I learned more about that incident. For example, I'm now very cognizant of calling it the tragedy at the Tree of Life Synagogue because several congregations uh, were there. 
And what the community said is we need to find a place to turn this into action. And this concept for the Eradicate Hate Global Summit was born. I think several pieces came out. A, there was a space that felt comfortable for victims who have meaningfully found ways to take legal action against online hate mobs that have threatened their life and livelihood. And they spoke from a place of, honestly, how life-changing that can be, how scary that trajectory can be. Knowing that, as we think about, the online world is something we're interacting with all of the time. And that, that kind of feeling that this will never go away. It is different than a burglary, which may make you feel unsafe in your house, but you can take steps. This online environment that continues and continues, how do we stop that? And so from the victim's perspective, there was a good, healthy conversation to be talking about what are those remedies and what are those solutions? And then to the prior conversation we were having, to the systemic conversation, there's really an investment at the University of Pittsburgh and Carnegie Mellon to come together and create a collaboratory that thinks about hate from a data-driven perspective. And I think this is the, the challenge that we know. As a platform, I have some lens into the challenges that happen on our, on our platform. I am dependent upon users reporting in many cases because technology is not going to solve all of these, these issues. But I don't have broad scale understanding of the data-driven solutions. We would love us to be thinking about addressing our pandemic with a data-driven solution. We should be thinking about hate in a data-driven manner. And so I'm optimistic about that community's investment, those institutions' investment, and really technology, academia, and experts coming together to do just that. And again, I, I just couldn't pause to realize that community wants to make that investment. And so I have a real belief <laughs> there will be energy that continues to move that work forward there. And as you alluded to before with your comments about what happened in Christchurch and just the proliferation of extremism online and some of Microsoft's efforts to offer, you know, people that are attracted to that kind of hate in the online space. You know, I know our country has been experiencing just tremendous amount of social and political upheaval in the past couple of years. And there's been a real call for companies, whether they're technology or otherwise, to step up to fight hate and racism and advance equity. I wanted to know, I guess, less from an online hate perspective, but maybe overall from a cultural perspective at Microsoft, how has this impacted the company or even just your team? In a couple of ways, if this makes sense. I think first, you hit that we've acknowledged and have honestly dedicated time to you know have conversations about the cultural moments that are occurring. That is important to the health and wellness of my team and really to help people understand the impact that they are driving in the larger scale. And so I think about, of course, we've had reflections on the systemic racism challenges that have plagued this country for time immemorial. But the moments of inflection during particularly last summer and Black Lives Matter and what we should be thinking about, we acknowledge that part of that has meant understanding better how, honestly, different communities use technology differently and have, unless we have a truly inclusive and diverse team, when we are setting our standards, our community guidelines in terms of use, are we really understanding fully the perspectives of other communities that I didn't grow up in? as to how they use technology. 
to fight hate potentially through language that I wouldn't use. That has been an educational inflection moment. And then there is truly that, how do you take care of that wellness? And so we've been building a broader community of those across Microsoft who focus on racial injustice issues across digital safety, across immigration issues, to be honest, given the burden that's taken and accessibility issues. Something that we're unpacking and trying to recognize a little bit, and that's advocacy fatigue. It's hard, and I think you probably experienced this, helping to bring other people along all of the time on a journey that you live day in, day out through your professional life. It can sometimes feel like Groundhog Day to talk about the safety challenges in technology to some new engineers who enter the company and are ready to hit the ground building code, but really need to understand how technology could possibly be used to be weaponized. And so we are starting to expand our understanding of this and build a community to talk about what is advocacy fatigue? How are you taking care of yourself? How are you building systems that can make advocacy more effective and scale so that, I'll say it again, you don't wake up and feel like Groundhog Day explaining the same risks to a different part of your company or community, but know that you're moving the ball forward. Are there any tools that you or your team has found to be really helpful in allowing you to sustain yourselves through the work and and just get through not only challenging times in society at large, but just the tough issues that you all work on every day? Yeah, for our team members who are really exposed to the really challenging content, we have very clear wellness programs in place for them. In fact, it's not just access to counselors, it is part of their job to have a conversation about the work that they do with professionals that is part of their job. In the broader scale of pieces, I think some of the challenges we've been going on is to calibrate as a newer team how much of this is in the hybrid work environment of COVID amplified, and we need to be thinking about wellness in that way. So we have done very conscious moments of just time to let people go focus on their life and their profession. Dedicated time to have no meeting Fridays where you are expanding your learning and understanding the discipline in a more meaningful way. And then lastly, really creating that safe space to say to people, what are you doing? I will share that on our team's chat, I wrote yesterday when it was a particularly gray day in Seattle. All right, guys, I've taken my vitamin D and I'm on my third cup of coffee, but what is anyone else doing today to to keep themselves going? And I think as a leader, you can just spark that conversation to to make people have a moment of inflection. What did you do for yourself today? Some people are like, all right, that's it. I'm taking a walk. You know what? My dog has been barking. I should get outside. And it did inspire a good conversation. Some of them just meant that they put a Hawaii backdrop on their team's calls for the rest of the day, but at least there was some sunshine. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Asking you one more kind of meaty tech online hate question, then we can segue to stuff that's a little bit more lighter. If you had unlimited resources and some little magic wand, is there any one thing or a couple of things that you would do to make a bigger impact at Microsoft or perhaps at, I don't know, other tech companies as well? It is a really challenging question because I do, at my very core, believe technology cannot solve these issues by themselves. And so if I did have a magic wand, I think we would open up in a much more meaningful way data 
across the online ecosystem about how hate is migrating in to these platforms because we need a 360 degree. And that would be a magic wand because the lawyer in me feels like saying to you, there's some serious barriers from there from a privacy regulatory framework perspective to a cybersecurity framework perspective. But I think one of the biggest challenges as those in this, in this space acknowledge, we cannot technology our way out of this problem. We can't AI our way out of this problem. And we need to be guided by a much deeper understanding of how trends are occurring and lead people to be radicalized online in a much faster way than used to occur in the offline environment. And that I think is the, the knowledge inflection moment. I can't stand the term flash to bang that's used by our FBI DHS colleagues, but, but it's true. Um, we know we've had challenges with hate time immemorial. We've seen people radicalized through movements, but the timeline changed fundamentally because of the access to the online environment. And thus what that means for potential harm is, is very different. And I think the only way to tackle that with that magic wand you gave me is really opening up knowledge in a more meaningful way to unlock the power of the collective battling this. And it sounds like from your team, it's an incredibly interdisciplinary approach that you have. And I'm sure within the company at large, do you work frequently with other technology companies on best practices and shared issues and challenges? In this space, we absolutely do. I mentioned before the Global Internet Forum on Counterterrorism. You know, this was founded uh, originally, you know, Microsoft, Facebook, YouTube and Twitter coming together, acknowledging the challenge of terrorism content online and building some tools that we wanted to make available to the broader spectrum of smaller and mid-sized companies. That has really evolved over the years into a standalone NGO that helps bring that multidisciplinary approach I've been talking so much about, but continues to say what's good for the entire ecosystem. One of the biggest challenges is we have a lot of governments around the world telling us, you need more tech platforms in there. Yes, that's true. We can't really tell other tech platforms what to do. Help us think about how to build that ecosystem. We definitely think about how we provide better resources. I think we've tackled child exploitation in a similar way through the technology coalition of 20 years. And I, I got to say, a legacy that I am building on, but was not here for, is Microsoft donating photo DNA for free to tackle this problem to all qualified tech platforms and NGOs, hopefully setting the standard. This is not what we compete in. This is where we collaborate to make the overall ecosystem better. But as we move into other areas, we're gonna have to think about open data in a much more meaningful way because the challenges of child exploitation and even terrorism content kind of pale in comparison to the funnel of hate and misinformation. And there's not easy legal answers to this. This is governed by our technology platforms, terms of service and community guidelines, because this content in and of itself typically is not illegal. So we need to figure out a, a, probably a new level of collaboration to unlock that power that comes when there's that partnership. Absolutely. And switching gears a little bit to a little bit more of a personal side, which I hope is okay. 
I know you're a mom of two and you've been someone that's really advocated for working moms and working parents in the workplace. And, you know, you've mentored, I'm sure many people over the years to help them also climb up the ladder. And I'm, I'm guessing from the enormity of the job that you described, it probably takes a tremendous amount of juggling and balance to be able to do what you do. What's your advice to other women looking to advance in their career and, you know, achieve their goals? I'd also love in a minute to get your takeaways on some of the big debates that are going on right now around paid family leave, which unfortunately <laughs> don't, don't seem like they're going in a great trajectory right not, now in Congress. Yeah. Not going the the, the right yeah. way. And yeah, maybe you, you probably, I almost immediately had to say, well, I don't, I can't stand that I will describe myself as one of the lucky ones, the fortunate ones to be at a company like Microsoft who had paid family leave because there's no way I'd be where I am right now. I have two amazing daughters, uh, eight and six, who challenge me every single day. And I know they make me a better leader because they make me constantly reminded that people think differently, communicate differently. uh, And I'm best when I show up with that mindset to my own team. Um, but no, we uh, apparently in DC are not ready to make this investment for moms across America. And I think it's just a fundamental need that we have. My best advice to, to moms is, I don't think there's a linear path. And building your community to have conversations with people who have juggled those challenges, made tough decisions, learned how to say no sometimes is an important, important piece. I think nothing like motherhood trains you to say yes more and more and more. And we have to take that moment back and reflect that there are different times to quote unquote lean in and different times to know when you need some space for yourself. And that juggling act, I just see going forward. I will take a moment and reflect. I have this conversation intergenerationally in my family a lot. My mom had an incredible career and was a public servant and a leader. But I reflect and say, you had a challenge. I mean, sometimes I think of it as the ridiculous broken promise we made to women in her generation that she could have it all. You could have the career and you could have the kids and you could have it all. No, there were trade-offs at different times. But then you put that to our generation in a 24 by seven world in which we are 24 by seven parents where sometimes sign up for that new soccer team happens at 8 p.m. at the same time as your international phone call with your team based in Singapore. That never stops. That wheel is not healthy. And it's just I'm just going to admit that. And so we're going to have to create better supports, really societally level, but at least as women being open and honest that that wheel doesn't work. It doesn't work all the time. And someone who is taking a moment to invest in another part of their life doesn't mean they wouldn't be the great CEO another year from now. And we're just going to have to admit life experience is equally valuable to leadership. Uh, And we have to find the space for it. That was a great answer. Ending on a bit of an uplifting note, because I know that some of the topics we talked about are weighty, Do you have a mentor or a role model who inspires you? It is mom. It is my mom. And let's be honest, uh, my mom held many titles, governor of the state of Washington, attorney general of the state of Washington. But I will say what, why she is my model is 
there's not a day that hasn't gone by that family didn't come first. And so I've, I've taken that belief that I can live my values of family and community first and have a successful career. What I've learned from her that she could still use help with is asking for help. (laughs) (laughs) And if our adult relationship has changed, I'll say, is this a moment that I could help? Do you want to ask for help? And it is a common joke. I want to make sure we teach this next generation of leaders of any gender, however they may identify, but particularly women leaders to ask for help. And that's a good thing. And you will be giving that person you're asking for help something as well as you're gaining something. So those those would be my thoughts on that. And in your tremendous amount of free time, um, <laughs> have you read or watched or even just listened to a little podcast lately that's been meaningful to you? Anything that you'd recommend to our listeners? Oh. I really struggle. I know. I really struggle. Oh, no. I try to make myself read, but sometimes it has to be the lighter stuff to complement the harder stuff. It does. Uh, well, I actually, the beginning of the pandemic, listened to The Happiness Lab by, mm-hmm. I think, Lori Santos. I think I'm getting that right. My husband and I actually both gave each other the assignment. Uh, listen to the happiness lab, and then we would discuss it. And, you know, it has given me a little insights. It's a reminder of, you know, how human beings don't actually intentionally structure our lives to find happiness. <laughs> we don't. Uh, and so I've loved listening to it. In particular, the gem from 18 months ago that still sticks with me is those small conversations you have with the person you sit next to on the bus, which we didn't get in COVID, or the barista that you saw in the morning, which we also didn't get in COVID. As a reminder, why my dad is one of the happiest persons I know, because there is not a human being on the face of this earth that he can't turn into like a six hour conversation and find common ground with. But it's a worth a listen. It's a worth a listen, even at that moment when you're saying, oops, am I structuring my life to find happiness in addition to quote unquote success and all of those other things? That's a great recommendation. I will definitely have to listen to it. So ending... What is one thing that's currently bringing you hope for a better, what sustains you so you can do all of your work and continue to do it the next day? You know, I truly have learned the value of this term that we all want to aspire to, inclusivity, when we have an open-ended team meeting on my team and you watch how someone who came from being a prosecutor, interacts with someone who's brand new, first, one of their first jobs out of college is to be a product engineer. And together they find the common ground to unlock a new solution. And it really does sustain me. You've got this wonderful clap emoji on these Teams calls since we're all virtual all the time now, but you just watch these moments of unlocked when you build a culture that people feel they can speak and know it's a circle of trust. So I have to say those, those little moments, those small wins and those small wins of building a culture that, that, Hey, that solution that we came up with in that great moment might not work, but that's okay. We'll be back at it tomorrow. That little unlocking moment is probably the, the thing that I love. Yeah. Hopefully something we can replicate in society at large. Well said. We need just a little bit of that. We, we could use a little <laughs> bit of that. Just just a little bit of that. Just a little. Well, thank you so much for your time today. Greatly appreciate the important work you do and you taking the time to chat with me. Absolutely. Thanks for this. 